Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu, the host of the channel, and today we have with us Nusrat Sabina Chadri, the author of the book Paradoxes of the Popular, Crowd Politics in Bangladesh. Uh, this was published by Stanford University Press in 2019. Nusrat is an associate professor of anthropology at Amherst College. Welcome to the show, Nusrat. Thank you, Sneha. Thank you for having me. Um, so, Nusrat, let's start this conversation off by you telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became an anthropologist. I think one of the reasons why I became an anthropologist was so that I wouldn't have to talk about myself. <laughs> but I thought I would always be behind the scene, but apparently not. But, you know, I did my undergraduate in anthropology and French. And at that time, I think anthropology interested me because. I think you would agree with me. Growing up, we we have seen a lot of kind of cultural, um, what shall we call them, incongruities. There's some xenophobia. There's a lot of complacency around inequality, around uh, a lot of intolerance, around um, difference. And I don't think I was of an age to completely articulate uh, those discomfort that I had with uh, the, a kind of cultural pride that people can have. And I thought anthropology as a discipline offered something that could uh, actually push us beyond that, you know, that you could um, actually find that your way is definitely not the best way. And there are all kinds of ways of thinking about the world. And I think at that age, it was inarticulate, but that was something that kind of propelled me towards a discipline like anthropology. But over the years, once I actually started uh, taking anthropology seriously, started being a a student of it, and then later when I was doing my PhD, I also realized that anthropology is one of those disciplines that actually helps collapse a lot of disciplinary boundaries. So, you know, I, I like literature. I like literary theory. I like political theory and anthropology of, I think most of the other social sciences is the one that allows you to draw and uh, form an argument without putting up walls of, of kind of disciplinary difference. And that's something that really speaks to me because that's how I think. And I do think that a lot of times if you're that narrowly focused or kind of narrowly narrowly following some kind of a disciplinary protocol, you miss out a lot. You miss out a lot of subtleties and nuances of of culture or cultural difference. So I think that that openness is something that that anthropology offers me. But that's, of course, something that I kind of came to learn over the years. But initially, I think um, it made me question, or it gave me a language to question the world around me, which was very important to me at that time. That's really beautifully put. I think um, I that, that definitely resonates with me as well, uh, questioning the world around us. Yeah. Um, well, before we dive into the book, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how this book even began. So what's the story behind this book coming into existence, I guess? I mean, you have read the book, so you have seen that I have a chapter uh, on accidents, and actually, the book came <laughs> into being accidentally. And I'm not, I'm not being facetious. The project actually happened to me accidentally, and as you know, a lot of ethnographic encounters actually happen accidentally, right? So I went to Bangladesh, or I came to Bangladesh now that I'm physically here in Bangladesh um, to study something completely different, and then this anti-mining protests erupted. 
And it was the first time that something that happened in kind of a remote place, uh, not really within um, the kind of, you know, um, the, the focus of the main kind of political um, interests of that time uh, happened. And it was the first time that a foreign, a multinational energy company had to leave. People were killed. And it was... It was sad, but it was also very exciting that something like this could happen. And and I just felt like this is something I need to look at. So I just went there uh, with a friend who has been organizing for the protesters for a while. And then I decided to delve into the project. But initially, it was more of a project on energy politics. Uh, and how to look at energy crisis and political crisis together. But when I turned the dissertation into the book, it uh, it had a much larger canvas and a much larger theoretical ground, because I think that's what a book should have. So ethnographically, the book actually um, is grounded in the fieldwork that I had done at that time. But analytically, it has a much larger scope than the dissertation. Okay, I mean, I think that's of much relief to a lot of people like me who are probably writing the dissertations and wondering why the scope is so narrow. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, there are two very different artifacts, you know, the dissertation and the book. And sometimes even uh, the book uh, may even be a slightly simplified form of the dissertation, you know, because in the dissertation, you're still grappling with a lot of issues and you want to write about everything, you know, but it's in the book project that you realize that you actually need a story, a narrative that runs through the chapters. So a lot of times you kind of have to cut off those branches and come up with a story that holds. So I don't think when people say, oh, the book is much more difficult than the dissertation or vice versa, I think they're just two very different genres and need to be tackled very differently. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, reassuring to hear. <laughs> well, I'm um, looking forward to reading your dissertation too. I don't, <laughs> I don't know when the book will come out, but... <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Um, so the coming to books and uh, <laughs> dissertations, well, the title of the book is The Paradoxes of the Popular. Um, and I was hoping that you could share with our listeners briefly what are the central paradoxes that drive this book forward and maybe say a little bit about how these paradoxes matter to the study of Bangladesh in South Asian studies or anthropology. Yeah, uh, thank you for that question. I I think I chose paradox <laughs> mostly because I am analytically interested in popular sovereignty. And popular sovereignty as a concept is paradoxical in nature because democracy itself is, um, is, the rule by, is a rule by the people, right? But there's always this question about who the people are. And the people, as many political theorists have argued, is a fiction, because you need the people and you do everything in the name of the people, but who are these people? It's, it's an abstraction and, uh, and it's also um, an approximation. Um, and it mostly actually comes out when you're talking about the crowd. I think the crowd really brings into relief this paradoxical nature of the people. But when I was thinking analytically, I also started thinking about Bangladesh as a site to study something like the paradox of popular sovereignty, because whenever you hear about Bangladesh, either within South Asia or beyond, you think of Bangladesh as a very crowded place, because it is one of the most crowded places in the world. So how do you talk about the crowd as an analytical category in a place that is one of the world's most crowded? So then I started thinking about how Bangladesh fits into that story. And it looks like that Bangladesh itself within South Asia um, has, po- has kind of um, offered itself as a paradox. So if you look at kind of the social indicators, you will see that Bangladesh has been doing better, uh, you know, in terms of gender, in terms of health, uh, compared to Pakistan or India, right? But you also see that uh, there's a lot of political um, 
upheaval. There's a lot of turmoil. Uh, there's a lot of corruption. Kind of the similar stories all across South Asia. But Bangladesh, I think, has managed to kind of sustain certain kinds of paradoxes that despite a lot of political turmoil, somehow these social indicators or, you know, um, economic indicators have gone up compared to its bigger and richer neighbors. So there's that that paradox of the country itself. Uh, and you know how Henry Kissinger had famously said that Bangladesh was a bottomless basket when it uh, became independent in 71. And people still bring it up. You know, I mean, even now you will read a Landum Economist article where they will say, oh, no more a bottomless basket. You know, like there's still a certain, <laughs> certain kind of surprise in the way in which Bangladesh has um, performed in certain sectors, obviously. Uh, but then there's also a lot of uh, political violence. There's a lot of corruption and all that that we see everywhere else in South Asia as well. So that paradox is is a much more narrow paradox. Uh, but my interest and my desire to have paradox in the title actually comes from a much more theoretical interest in the paradox of peoplehood itself and how to understand mass democracy by focusing on the people that is very hard to define. And that difficulty is personified in the figure of the crowd. And that's why I, I thought that um, paradoxes of the popular would be a kind of um, interesting way to capture uh, those contradictions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very provocative title and definitely made me want to pick up the book. So. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I, was, I was told that was not the case before, but I held my ground. So I'm glad that it was. <laughs> Um, so as such, this is such a beautifully written and such a rich book. And um, I personally found the ethnographic material to be so fulfilling in its um, scope and its depth and um, definitely in its variety. Uh, so I uh, am curious to know how you began to envisage doing ethnographic work on the crowd, which, as you've argued in the book, is often understood as ephemeral and momentary. Um, so I guess my question is about how theory and method kind of came together and I'm sure evolved as the book progressed. Okay. Well, before I answer that question, I want to say that coming from you, that's a big compliment because I know now that you're an amazing writer. <laughs> and that's why I'm saying I'm looking forward to reading the dissertation. So thank, thank you. you. <laughs> but I think, as I said, I didn't really go to study the crowd. Uh, because how does one do that, right? But uh, when I but I did know that I wanted to study mass politics, but from a kind of intimate um, perspective, and that's why I was um, when I was talking to people, I wasn't only talking to the leaders that I um, I was told to talk to. You know, there were and I write this in at the beginning of my book that a lot of characters that will come that you will come across in my book were kind of at at the edges you know they were uh, hovering in the crowd or they kind of accidentally joined a rally and i think that is really the true nature of of the crowd i mean there's an excessive nature of the crowd and the edges of the crowd are never clear you know, and so when I was looking at my ethnography, when I was looking at what people were saying, I realized that all these characters um, actually were in many ways, what they were saying had an ephemeral nature. And instead of instead of not focusing on that or kind of discarding that, I thought that why not look at this ephemerality as a symptom? as a symptom of how mass politics works. And I think that's when I realized that actually what I'm looking at is crowd politics. But crowd politics doesn't always mean that everything is happening in the public sphere, that, you know, that everything is flamboyant or, or spectacular. There's also an intimate nature of crowd politics. You know, people do decide to go and be part of a crowd and they do decide to change their behavior. Um, so that... Uh, that, I think, is something that happened retrospectively. But by retrospectively, I don't mean that I imposed the crowd theory on my ethnographic material. What I did was that 
when I started looking at uh, the ethnography, particularly the characters, I realized that they actually form a crowd. And this is one way of actually giving a name to some of the things that they're doing that don't readily seem to us as resistance in any kind of straightforward sense. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's really something uh, to think about. And thank you for sharing that. Ephemerality as a symptom is, uh, is a fabulous way of putting it, uh, I suppose. Um, so, Nusraf, I was very struck by your thoughts on uh, gender relations in Bangladesh and how that is shaped by and shapes the emergence and representation of the crowd. Um, I think especially in, in the introduction and in chapter three, uh, with the accidental uh, uh, engagement with the politics of crowd by uh, Majeda, is it? That is, Mad- Majeda. Uh, Majeda, yeah. So I was hoping uh, you could say a little more about one, the gender of the crowd and two, gender in the crowd. And in that sense, also your own positionality in studying the crowd. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who grew up in South Asia, and and you can surely, um, you know, um, you you can tell me that you know whether I'm wrong. Uh, there's a way in which women have to navigate crowded spaces, and it's not just women. Everybody has to navigate the crowd, right? But uh, women across the board have to navigate their uh, the space, have to manage their bodies in a very particular way. So when I was writing the book about crowds and there was all this like political theory and there's this ethnography, it made me uncomfortable at one point. It just seemed like I was just celebrating the crowd as kind of this figure of um, either resistance or figure of, uh, or agent of, of politics instead of taking into account the fact that a lot of times I would not feel comfortable being in a crowd like that, you know, whether it's a, you know, cricket stadium crowd or, or whether it's a political rally crowd, uh, because there is a gender, uh, gender aspect, the way in which at least in South Asia, crowds are imagined and crowds are performed. So I thought that's something that needs to be uh that needs to be discussed at the very outset, that I do understand that uh, that crowds have a gender both analytically and also ethnographically. So uh, actually some, some of my very respected uh, feminist colleagues, at least a couple of them, when they read parts of the introduction or parts of the other chapter, have felt a certain discomfort when I said the crowd is uh, masculine gendered because they pointed out that there are so many women uh, in the crowd. And I think I'm not saying that at all. I mean, if you come out in Dhaka in very early in the morning, you'll see thousands and thousands of young women who are ready-made garment factory workers, right? I mean, that's a veritable crowd. It's What I'm saying is not that there are no women in the crowd. But the crowd is ideologically a masculine phenomenon. Um, so that's very different from saying that women are not in the crowd. And the fact that we still have to um, kind of celebrate things like take back the night or, or whatever shows that the street, and you work on, on streets and, 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 and traffic and, and you know, public spaces, you understand that there's a, there's a way in which the street um, is masculine gendered. Uh, or unmarked, you know, in in that sense. But the accident chapter, I think, made me realize uh, very uh, kind of profoundly that Majida was a celebrated figure, right? When I went to Fulbari, everybody told me I should talk to her because she's so courageous, she is so amazing, her photos were everywhere. And when I went to talk to her, I felt like she was being celebrated in a very specific register which is a feminine register you know she didn't she didn't participate because of any ideological reason she participated because the police were beating up uh, somebody that she respected a lot there was kinship there was a lot of anger there's a certain kind of affect 
that's associated with women, which could become a political effect. And it was kind of retrospectively um, kind of re-signified. She was co-opted into the movement. But I thought that that was not the whole story. You know, for me, Majida is a feminist figure and Majida is a political figure, but not necessarily for the same reasons for which she was celebrated within the movement. And I think that's why even when we talk about crowds, we talk about mass politics, we also need to take into account the intimate nature of it. What actually compels somebody to come to the streets or attack a police, uh, a member of the police, right? I mean, there are all kinds of uh, reasons that are not easily legible within a very straightforward script of crowd resistance. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think um, in the introduction, I was also struck by how um, crowds are also understood as uh, feminine in the sense of their hysterical or emotional or excessive nature, right? Like there is that tension between the crowd being made up of men, but also exhibiting certain characteristics that are associated with women. Um, And then, yeah, so it was... uh, was striking to me how there were all these sort of again like paradoxes within uh, when we think of gender and the crowd and um, and this point actually was made by all these you know uh, 19th and 20th century scholars you know uh, lebon freud they all actually talked about uh, how the crowd was a feminine figure precisely because of these reasons because when you're in a crowd you're emotional you're not uh, a rational person anymore and you lose your kind of sanity a little bit. That's what Freud would say. Uh, but I think that while that is the case to a certain extent uh, within South Asia, it doesn't have the same history because a lot of this kind of writing, derogatory, I guess, writing about the crowd emerged in interwar Europe, you know, within the rise of fascism. Uh, we see a little bit of that now with the rise of various kinds of right-wing populisms where people are, again, scared of certain kinds of crowds. But I think that, you know, if you look, if you read William Mazzarella's book, uh, Sensorium, where he talks about uh, how the male head of the household is kind of a censor, right? Like he decides whether the women, the children of the house can actually watch this film, you know? So there's a way in which um, even when you're part of a crowd, there there are certain aspects of it that are that are you know, feminized or feminine, but there are also ways in which uh, men uh, are, men and women are differentially uh, participants in a crowd. And I kind of want to hold on to this point, and maybe I don't have enough to substantiate it, but I think as, um, I think beyond, you know, consciously being an ethnographer, as somebody who is a product of this culture or this space that I have studied, I just cannot um, cannot dismiss this this sense that I have that the crowd, both sociologically and ideologically, is a masculine phenomenon in South Asia. Hmm. No, I think uh, I think you've substantiated it really well through your ethnography. So. <laughs> uh. Um, I think my favorite chapter was the one about um, collab. I mean, there were two. There was the first one about picture thinking, which I will come to uh, in my next question. But um, I just wanted uh, you to say something about uh, the chapter on collaborators or the lulls. Um, I, I was very intrigued by how the figure of the collaborator, it, uh, like you said, disturbs the quality between friend and enemy. Um, and I was curious to know more from you about how this figure is key to the, I guess, the continued reproduction of the crowd um, as constitutive of democratic politics in Bangladesh. Yeah, I'm so glad you liked that chapter because it's one of those chapters that was hard to write because, as I told you, people were talking about uh, the Dalal all the time, right? Much more than the energy corporation, much more than anybody else. But if you actually asked anybody, nobody would actually show you, uh, you know, a, a, a particular Dalal at that point. It was always retrospective. It was always indirect, uh, which doesn't mean that it didn't have any uh, purchase. And that's why I think it was such a powerful form of signification, because, because it was indirect. Um, and there was a lot of cultural work that went into 
denying a certain kind of accusation that you could be a dalal, you know? And so when I first went there, I thought it was really fascinating that people were talking about dalals all the time, as if they were the true enemies. And then I started thinking about what the figure uh, of a collaborator actually represents, not just sociologically, but I guess for a lack of a better word, psychoanalytically for for a nation. Because if you look at the history of Bangladesh, uh, some of the most um, important and some of the most controversial political decisions and movements in the last 40, 50 years uh, have taken place around the figure of the collaborator. Basically, the people, the Bengalis who sided uh, with West Pakistanis um, during the time of independence. So I thought there's something about a figure that doesn't, that's neither this nor that, you know, that kind of straddles the boundaries of local and the foreign. And it's interesting in the last chapter when I write about the war crimes tribunal, that in that um, tribunal, the Pakistanis were actually not brought into uh, Justice. So there was no effort to bring them. Of course, there, there were a lot of problems with that, all despite the fact that it was called International Crimes Tribunal. It was actually not international. So there are all kinds of legal issues. But I think there's something very revealing about the fact that you're actually bringing um, under the law people who are basically of your own, you know, who look like you. And in the case of uh, Pulbari, basically, literally your neighbor. And that uh, that kind of ambivalence, that's, that suspicion, that inability to identify is, I think, very productive. And it produced a particular kind of culture of suspicion that I think was very important for me to, um, to capture, because I think otherwise the story would have been incomplete. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, um, that's really uh, clarifying. Thank you. Um, so, uh, the other, the two chapters to me that um, very interestingly dealt with similar issues, but through through different analytical uh, approaches, was like the first chapter, which was talking about picture thinking and how certain artifacts get implicated in um, in in political in in this quest for figuring out what is an unruly crowd versus what is an enlightened citizenry that can engage with uh, democratic politics, right and I thought I was uh, really struck by your discussion of national identi- identity cards um, and the sort of aspiration towards uh, transparency that only technology can afford uh, countries like India and Bangladesh. And then we have the last chapter that's talking about digital technologies and their salience and mediating social and politi- political communication. Um, so I was curious, one, to know, to for you to say a little more about um, how the state indulges in picture thinking, um, and then maybe to talk about how there are certain kinds of crowds that are privileged over others, and what kinds of differences uh, did you yourself see when you were doing this work um, uh, around digital technologies and uh, online communications? Yeah, I mean, I think both of us can come up with many examples of how the state itself indulges in picture thinking, right? I mean, all, you know, most recently in the case of uh, the Citizenship Amendment Act uh, in India and the National Register of Citizens, I mean, there's a certain kind of um, desire to enumerate and identify and put names to faces, uh, a completely you know, an impossible project, you know, to begin with. And many people uh, who know much better than me have pointed this out. But there's a way in which this is a performance. This is a performance of knowing things that the state, I think, ultimately doesn't or cannot know. And I think um, Akasumiya's ID card kind of shows that, um, you know, of course it's a joke and and shows this in a funny way, but of course uh, a lot of these the results of this kind of state intervention is not funny. You know, they're, uh, they're actually poor, mostly poor working class citizens who bear the brunt of these kinds of identifications. I'll give you a little example. This is not from my own research, but recently I've talked to some people who have been working on 
ready-made garment factory workers. And now how a lot of these young women who come to the capital city to work, sometimes they were married before. Um, they come here and they, you know, change their um, identity. They change their name. They Sometimes they live with men um, or marry them to be able to rent a place and they do it with another name. A lot of times they don't want to get a national ID card because precisely because of these reasons. And then um, one of them, and, it, and it's a particular ethnographic vignette that I heard uh, from another anthropologist who died. And when her body was taken back to her village, uh, people claimed she was not from there because she didn't have a national ID card. You know, so, so so there's a way in which this is really, you know, at some level it's Foucauldian, but at another level it's um, it's really, you know, the state who is indulging in picture thinking, you know, without uh, thinking about all these other networks and other ways of navigating these spaces that these women have to navigate to be to do what they do. Uh, the state is actually focusing on this one bureaucratic artifact. So that's kind of uh, what I wanted to um, capture uh, in this particular chapter. And also because this chapter was uh, written in the back, against the background of a political emergency in Bangladesh. And this was not the first political emergency, but it was a really uh, significant one uh, because both the leaders of the incumbent party and the opposition party were sent to jail. There was a serious effort at cleansing, you know, democracy and rooting out corruption and all that. And uh, and the issuing of the national ID card was part of that whole project of digitization. And as we all know that, you know, digitization does not really get rid of these social issues. I mean, technocracy can only do so much. So I think the ID card uh, fiasco kind of points to the ridiculous nature of, of that claim all across South Asia, that somehow digitization and technocracy uh, are going to solve all our social ills. Yeah, and then uh, I guess there's... Um, there's a recognition of certain kinds of crowds over others um, that uh, that you also bring up in your last chapter. And I was uh, wondering if you wanted to say something about how uh, does it matter how you're engaging with the state through which online or digital platform you're doing this uh, that can determine whether you're more legitimate or illegitimate or are these just predetermined from the from the very start? Right now, the way things are in Bangladesh, we uh, what we have right now is a very stringent, very oppressive um, digital um, act. I'm forgetting the whole name right now. It's just it's Article uh, 15. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the law. Anyway, so a lot of um, activists, a lot of journalists have been arrested. Uh, under that law for um, for spreading rumors, for uh, critiquing the government, for critiquing uh, the head of the state. And it's an extremely repressive law. So I don't think at this point it really matters which platform you use. Uh, what matters is that you people are really censoring themselves because uh, there's so much surveillance, especially of the digital media, especially if you write in English. So, um, and, and the English part, obviously, we understand because it's all about kind of foreign um, gates, right? So, uh, Shohidul Alom, the journalist who was imprisoned in 2018 because he had given an interview uh, on Al Jazeera about the last elections and uh, about how, in 2019 actually, about the last uh, national elections and how that was actually not uh, completely fair, which is an understatement, uh, he was arrested on charges of uh, basically tarnishing the image of the country. And this tarnishing the image of the country is a phrase that <laughs> we are all familiar with all over South Asia. Um, and and rumor itself, which is something I'm kind of 
thinking about for my next project, uh, rumor itself has become some kind of evidence. So whatever is said against the government is immediately categorized as rumor. And then that becomes an evidence of certain kind of anti-national activities. Um, so, so I think digital uh, media right now in Bangladesh, like all media, but the digital media mostly because it has a far wider reach uh, than print media, are under very strict surveillance. And people are, especially journalists and activists, are being arrested left and right for even saying things like, you know, this hospital doesn't have any PPE or we didn't get any uh, N95 masks. You know, so any kind, anything uh, being critical of the government is being seen as rumor mongering. Right. I mean, it's uh, unfortunately a very similar state even in India, I can yeah. say <laughs> pretty confidently, especially with uh, people getting arrested at, uh, under certain kinds of uh, very repressive laws. Yeah, I know. And sometimes I feel yeah. like maybe there's certain kind of uh, rule book that yeah. <laughs> a lot of these people are actually reading from because there's so many uncanny similarities between what is happening all across South Asia and even in the United States to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess even in terms of uh, these aspirations to digital technologies to, I don't know, like bestow some kind of personhood on uh, people, um, separate them from a mass of <laughs> yeah. people, a mass of yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. I mean, I think in that last chapter, the other thing that I uh, was trying to look at was the secular crowd versus the religious crowd. Uh, and I think that's an important uh, distinction to make, not necessarily secular crowd as much, because secular kind of has become a bad word uh, in Bangladesh, in the sense that the ruling party has co-opted other terms secular um, as something that only they signify or they can ensure, which is not the case. Uh, but religious um, crowds uh, are seen uh, in a very particular way. And we have seen this um, in this during this COVID-19 crisis, both in Bangladesh and India. Uh, so in India, the Tabligh Jamaat uh, issue kind of became uh, a, a, another kind of ploy to... to uh, you know, kind of demean um, Muslims. And in Bangladesh too, you know, a lot of times religious crowds are seen as stupid crowds, you know. And the stupidity, quote unquote, of the crowd is something that's very interesting because which crowd becomes stupid depends on so many things. Uh, you know, so you don't really question the state's um, kind of um, ability or the state's effort to to uh, spread awareness, uh, to kind of tell people, you know, what's the difference between social contagion and biological contagion and all that. And then you expect, and then something like this happens, and then all the blame is on the stupid crowd. And a lot of times, if it's a blatantly religious crowd, then it's really easy to blame it on them. But if you actually, if you really want to see stupidity, you kind of have to see some of the ways in which our political leaders are uh, distributing relief um, for, you know, poor people during the COVID-19 crisis, they're all huddled together, like 40 of them, you know, uh, no masks, nothing. And it's a photo op, yeah. right? And, yeah. and then, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, and they're giving away uh, rice and, and they're being photographed and their photographs are uh, in the newspaper and you're telling these poor people that they are not following social isolation. You know, so... But stupidity and crowd are two words that often appear together, which is also something I wanted to engage with a little bit in the first chapter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, these pictures that are being put out, uh, again, circle back to this obsession with the image, right? And um, how difficult it is to control uh, one's own narrative in, in, especially in like an online sphere where videos go viral so quickly. So there are these really trite pictures being put out. But on the other hand, uh, as soon as a policeman beats a person up, like that video tends to go viral quicker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. And I... Yeah, I, I, I no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, because I just wrote a very short piece about crowd and contagion in light of uh, COVID-19. 
And I was thinking how crowds have always been uh, thought of as contagious, you know, because if you if you become a part of a crowd, you kind of lose your uh, ability to reason. And, and that is contagious. I mean, Gabriel Taht has talked about imitation in his book, Laws of Imitation, that the crowd, you know, imitates uh, one another. And it's really interesting to think about that in terms of biological contagion, because I think the difference between social contagion and biological contagion uh, is not um, is not that clear cut. And there are all kinds of cultural ways in which um, people don't make a difference between those two. Uh, but it's just something that I've been thinking about because because of what's happening around us right now. Yeah, where can we read this piece? I would be very curious. Well, it's very short, but it's going to come out in the Cultural Anthropology Forum on Friday, so you can read it. Oh, great. <laughs> I'll keep an eye out. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think um, finally about the book, I was very uh, curious to see the, uh, you discuss a photograph um, that was censored uh, by the government, but like I was just curious to know, did you have any issues in reproducing that image in the book? Like, was there... Uh, did you think about the fact that this is a censored picture and whether you should be putting it back? Um, yeah, I thought about it a lot. But by the time the book came out, uh, it fizzled out. Uh, so when I was actually writing the dissertation, when I had to carry that little booklet um, to bring with me to the United States to be able to write my dissertation, I thought so much about it because the emergency government was there and if they saw something that was banned, that would be bad uh, and, you know, all that. But like everything else, uh, that uh, government is not in power anymore. And uh, and that picture, although it's still controversial and, and there's a little bit of a, a misunderstanding in that writing, I think, because... One, when, it, when it first came out, uh, the booklet that I read, the author claimed that it was censored. And then right before I was publishing the book, I had to get the permission from the, uh, from the photographer. So I met with him and he said, and this was very late in the game, that officially the photograph was never censored, but nobody was willing to print it. Uh, because it was, it was you know, uh, dis- supposedly disrespectful to the military. So even now, uh, nobody, I have never seen it being printed in any uh, local press. So um, I got permission from the photographer um, and I met with him. But I know that uh, because of the way the, you know, politics is unfolding now, that publishing that photograph in in a book, an academic book that's written in English, is actually not that big a deal. But if I if I put it up on Facebook or if I actually wrote a newspaper article in Bangla and tried to publish it in the local newspaper, I think there would still be a problem. Right. And this is for our listeners who haven't read the book yet. This is the, called the photo the photograph of the infamous kick in which there's a protester, is it, who who, uh, is seen uh, kicking or trying to kick a military personnel on the street. Yeah, and it's it's just not done, right? Because the military is all-powerful. You know, not maybe as much in Pakistan, but quite similar. And uh, a military jawan wearing the uniform is being kicked by a random guy on the street uh, is extremely um, it's extremely problematic from the military's perspective um, because of its image of being all powerful and all that and because the emergency government was actually uh, you know was actually a military backed government that that was uh, that was a very big deal at that time so, um, so, but the photograph is very powerful because, as I argue in the book, that although it's one person who is kicking uh, the military jawan, that that person actually can be seen as a part of a crowd because he's anonymous, you can't see his face, and, uh, and he is, you know, kind of performing this excess, uh, uh, performing something that is in excess of what is considered to be democratic politics. So I make an argument that even this, you know, this one person 
kicking the military can be seen as a part of a crowd and what the crowd is capable of uh, doing. Um, yeah, so I was worried about this photograph and till the last moment I was worried that I might not be able to get the permission of the photographer and he was very kind to give it to me. So I'm really glad that it's in the book. But I do worry. I do worry that one of these days somebody uh, would pick up my book and find a few things <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that, that they might not like, you know. And a lot of times what happens with these books is that nobody really reads them. Nobody's really going to try to understand or engage with the argument. It's just that there's an image that supposedly makes fun of this or that person. Uh, and that can become an issue. And, you know, academia is uh, in many ways not very effective in the wider world, as we all know, but also, <laughs> it also shelters us sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I don't yeah. think very many people in uh, Bangladesh are actually reading the book. Unfortunately, it's in English. So uh, mm-hmm. that is one of the problems. Have uh, some of your uh, interlocutors been curious about the book? Oh, yeah. Just the other day, a friend of mine uh, sent me a message saying, so who was the one who gave you that Alam Badiou quote in the last chapter? (laughs) Is it this person or is it that person? (laughs) (laughs) I said, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. She's like, okay, okay. It's more fun to speculate. So so I think there is a way in which um, some people can figure out some of them, but I have been right. very, very careful and as much as I can, clever yeah. Uh, yeah. in, in um, kind of hiding their identities. Yeah, I mean, it is it is tough, especially when it's um, the small world of some, some people who know each other, they can almost pick up uh, based on the mannerisms that you described, yeah. Um, and Nusrat, they've uh, taken up a lot of your time, so I don't want to keep you here for longer, but before... Uh, we let you go. Um, we would all love to hear more about what you're working on right now and what we might expect to see from you soon. Um, you know, I'm in Bangladesh right now. I came here to do field work for the second book. And then, of course, COVID-19 happened. Uh, so that all stopped. But my interest right now is in surveillance and uh, surveillance both in terms of technology Uh, new technologies, but also older technologies. So I'm also trying to think of rumors as a form of surveillance and how people talk about others and how people talk about the state. So it's not just kind of a top-down version of CCTV cameras and wiretapping. It's also about how socially surveillance works. But uh, methodologically, I've been having problems. I've been talking to people and everybody gets very excited and they all say that, this is a great topic and they give you an anecdote and they don't want to talk anymore. So I, I realize that there's a lot of self-censorship. So self-censorship could be something that I might be writing about at some point. But I was also thinking that, so one of the things that I was uh, interested in uh, was to see if I could dislodge visuality um, from a discussion of surveillance and think about orality like how people talk about surveillance. So surveillance, not just about uh, seeing, but hearing. Uh, Because a lot of uh, discussion about surveillance is about seeing, but actually there's a lot of hearing that happens as well. Um, So that's something that I'm analytically interested in. But now that my research or the ethnographic aspect of it has stopped and given the kind of current situation, I am also toying with the idea of working with um, migrant workers in Bangladesh and how their lives are going to be after COVID-19. So that's something that I've been thinking about because, as you know, and if you read that short piece, you'll see that it's the migrant workers who came back to Bangladesh after uh, coronavirus surfaced in China have been stigmatized and have been basically seen as kind of portal of this infection. So there's a lot of stigmatization, there's a lot of marking. Um, So I'm trying to think, I'm trying to imagine what their lives are going to be here and wherever else they work uh, after uh, something like, um, you know, COVID-19 actually 
I don't know, settles down. Who knows when that will be? Uh, so, but this is something I, I'm thinking about because I think this is also about surveillance, right? Uh, so this is still, yes, so this is still within my larger interest of surveillance, but I might narrow it down uh, given the the kind of situation that's unfolding around us. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really, I mean, I'd never really thought about surveillance as uh, going beyond the visual. So now that's really got me thinking. So thanks for that. And I think that's fabulous. And all of this sounds really exciting. And um, I think it is, um, it's sad to hear that so many projects have kind of been disrupted because of COVID, but I think you're thinking about it in an interesting manner because of the disruption. So that's yeah, I'm but sure I don't want to only think of it as disruption. You know, I mean, disruption is when people are losing their jobs, when they, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. actually don't have enough to eat. So um, I am one of the privileged ones to be able to think more critically about the situation. So I think that instead of thinking of it as disruption, we should all think of it as uh, a kind of reminder to think differently about not just about our work, but the world in which we work, you know? Um, so, but there's a lot more thinking to be done for sure. Um, but I would like to talk to you more about uh, surveillance and orality and visuality <laughs> off, yeah, off the record. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on that uh, fabulously inspiring note of uh, needing to think differently, <laughs> we shall um, let you go. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking time out during this time. No, thank you. Thank you so much. This um, I never thought I had so much to say. <laughs> so <laughs> ringing that out. And I'm sorry if you heard my cat meowing in the background. I don't, oh, know, no. I, I don't know why he was meowing. I think he was wanting attention. But thank you so much, Neha. I hope your rest of the semester goes well. And let's be in touch. Thank you.